These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. The year is about 1121 BCE. We met the current king of Asher last time, a fellow named Asheresh Ishi, and he still has a few more years on the throne, but he's not the star of our show today. Down in Babylon, King Ninurta Nadanshumi just attacked the Assyrians and seems to have botched things a little bit. We have various, very light indications that the objective military strength of Babylon was slightly above all of its neighbors for a few decades around this time. And when Ninurta Nadanshumi came home after having lost a potentially winnable war, Various courtiers at the capital conspired with his son to have him killed and replaced. There are some things about this that don't make sense, though. It isn't clear that Ninurta Nadanshumi actually lost the war. We are in a very interesting historical period where nearly everything we know about warfare at all comes from Assyrians, and the Assyrians have a tendency to claim absolute victory in every conflict for obvious political reasons. The Babylonians, however, especially after the fall of the Kassite dynasty, are almost completely silent on the subject of war, even when they might actually be winning. The one exception, the Elamite War that we're going to discuss today, is remembered for centuries afterward, yet the only mentions in this period are almost incidental accounts giving just the necessary background into the Elamite conflict to explain some economic or legal or religious detail that the author actually cares about. Broadly speaking, economics and religion were what Babylonians wrote about during this period, and even much of that is scanty. With all that said, when we do read about Ninurtanad and Shumi's attack on Assyria, he pushed pretty far north. In fact, no Babylonian king will reach Arba'il or anywhere close to that far north in subsequent campaigns for a very, very long time. Additionally, we aren't actually sure that it was... Ninurtanad and Shumi, who was killed in a palace coup. He could have died of unrelated causes, been replaced by a short-lived and highly disfavored usurper, who was in turn replaced by a palace coup. But there is an absolute ton of uncertainty here, and we have about 10 documents total confirmed to the reign of his successor, and a bit less for Ninurtanad and Shumi himself. And so we just fill in the gaps by assuming certain things. Even though it looks like he may have done pretty well for himself and possibly set up the Babylonian army to be in a good position going forward, he made enemies within the court and convinced a number of people, including probably his son, that he was messing up somewhere. And so we get to what was probably a royal patricide. And here let me tell you, a little tragedy written nowhere in history, but implied somewhere. The son of Ninurta Nadanshumi was a man named Nabu-Kuduri-Usur. Now, all ancient names had meaning, and most of them were invoking the gods in some way or another. Nabu-Kuduri-Usur means, Nabu, protect my heir. 
the son's name was very specifically a prayer from the father to the god Nabu that the god would protect the young child as he grew up and took over the kingship. And this boy, whose very name was the prayer of his loving father, would grow, to, grow up to murder his father. And we can build vague pictures in our heads from this, but we can't really take the story too much further except to pause and talk about names for a while. You see, ancient names across the Near East were packed full of meaning. I translate the names on this show from time to time, but really every single name that we've seen on this show had some sort of meaning. This is profoundly different from the modern West. My own name is James, and it means nothing. I was named because my father was James, and his father was in fact also a James, and past that it gets a little bit fuzzy, but the name bounced around the family tree for a while, and ultimately comes from, of course, the biblical James of the New Testament, likely the one called the brother of Jesus. And even then, that James is almost certainly named not for its meaning, but after the earlier Old Testament patriarch Jacob, because, of course, Jacob and James are the two same names in Hebrew. But that original Jacob was not named arbitrarily. That original Jacob was named in a pun, which can both mean to follow after and may God protect. And, of course, the name gets an extra pun when he does, in fact, supplant his brother. But if we look at certain other cultures, like the Native Americans, many of whom are most famous in their literally translated names, like Sitting Bull or Crazy Horse, or if we look at modern Chinese culture, where parents still consider the underlying meanings of the characters used when naming a child, and we can sort of get that there's a spectrum to how significant a name is in a culture, or at least the name's meaning. In the U.S., we're kind of at one extreme end. My name means essentially nothing, and my parents picked it with very little consideration beyond lineage. On the opposite side, the Lakota chief Sitting Bull's name had so much complexity and origin and meaning that it takes Wikipedia a full paragraph just to summarize the full meaning of this guy's name. And then there's also space in the middle. Consider the current leader of China, Xi Jinping. His given name, Jinping, uses characters that mean something like drawing towards equality, a nice communist message for a baby born in the communist era. But people very rarely invoke the actual meaning of his name, or at least I very rarely see it. And Generally, I've seen very few mentions of the meaning of a Chinese or Japanese person's name used in a way that's seriously related to anything in their life. Whatever meaning the parents may have intended for that child becomes ultimately subsumed by the name as a set of sounds for designating a person. Where then do we put ancient Mesopotamian names on this spectrum? We often see that the name itself, whichever god is invoked in the name, often becomes a person's personal deity later in life, though how often this is the case is very hard to judge, especially since it's often hard to know for sure which god is a person's personal god with just the evidence we have available to us. And so as Ninurtanadin Shumi is crying out Nabukuduri Usur, his name, as the son plunges the dagger into the father's heart, or whatever actually happened, 
Was the father shouting sounds that called out to his son? Or was he shouting sounds that called to mind the prayer recited over a baby? Or was it a complicated mix of both? Now, ultimately, we don't really have any clear way to know, but we do get a strong sense that the meaning of a name was intended to be reproduced over and over and over throughout a person's life every time someone spoke that name. But what all this talking about names gets us very indirectly is to the point that most of you listening have no idea who this fellow Nabukuduri Usur actually is. And that's because you'll find him mentioned only rarely by that name in modern texts, and that's both scholarly and popular. This is because he's far better known, at least in English, as Nebuchadnezzar, or Nebuchadnezzar, specifically Nebuchadnezzar I. But of course, this wasn't the first until a few hundred years later when the second one came around, so he's just Nebuchadnezzar for now. And that second Nebuchadnezzar proves to be the significant one in the naming department. You see, no one ever called the hero of today's episode, Nabukuduri Usur I, by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, there's a good chance that no one in the entire world had the occasion to make the sounds Nebuchadnezzar for any purpose at any point during Nabukuduri Usur's life. The name Nebuchadnezzar is a Hebrew garbling of Nabukuduri Usur, directed at Nebuchadnezzar II, who's super famous for being the Babylonian king at the time of the Babylonian conquest of Judah, and thus earning himself a place in the Bible. And the Hebrew would be more like Nebuchadnezzar, but it's Nebuchadnezzar in English. That's much better. Then, much later, during the era of modern archaeology, and earlier, Nabukuri Usur was discovered, and he was given the same English title of Nebuchadnezzar, just to be consistent with the more famous second king of that name. And all this gets us to a question. Is it at all appropriate to call this guy that we're talking about today Nebuchadnezzar, when that name is an anachronism invented centuries later by an enemy nation, or should we call him Nabukuduri Usur in deference to his native culture and what the man himself would have called himself, and in fact would have been more consistent with his own desires, as it would have repeated the prayer to Nabu every time I say it here on this show, every time you hear it in your mind, the prayer would be repeating in your own mind, and just every time it's mentioned, even now, thousands of years after he's died. And all of that is a question that can be pondered for far longer than I've pondered it. And frankly, the bottom line for me is that if you're reading pretty much anything written nowadays in English about this king, it'll use the name Nebuchadnezzar. So that's what we're going with. Just keep in mind that there is some stuff going on with these names. Is it imperialism? Is it colonialism? I don't feel like a, col a colonist, in re at least not in regards to the ancient Babylonians, but eh, I don't know. Now, having said all that just about his name, you might be forgiven for thinking that he was super important and a world-changing king, and that this is 
probably just episode one in a whole mini-series dedicated to this one guy and his accomplishments. And in that, you'd be wrong. His entire reign can be summed up in a single paragraph, and not even a terribly long paragraph. And while he would be remembered as the best Babylonian king of the Issan dynasty by later Babylonian generations, that's frankly not a terribly high standard against which to measure. But he gets a whole episode today, and he'll actually show up next episode, because he is slightly interesting. And more importantly, he sits at the crossroads of some important historical trends. First is the naming. We looked at it in probably more detail than it really deserves just now, but that's because this question of Hebrew garbled names versus native Babylonian and Assyrian names will crop up more and more frequently. Indeed, a bit later in Nebuchadnezzar's The First's Life, the king of Assyria will die and be replaced by Tiglath-Pileser I, which is a Hebraization of the Assyrian name Tekulti Apil Ashara, and whom we'll look at in more detail next episode. These Hebrew versions of names are not necessarily derogatory, nor are they intentionally wrong for any reason. Just as today the name James can be rendered in other languages as Jaime or Diego or Giacomo, each of which loses the meaning of the original Hebrew name, so too the Hebrews translated the names of other nations into things that were more comfortable sounds for their own language. Now going forward, I'm probably going to keep mentioning the original names and their meanings when I have them, but for the most part, guys with Hebraized names will, following general academic and, let's be honest, Wikipedia practice, get those Bible names applied to them, even when it is anachronistic, as it is now. Anyway, the other important thing about Nebuchadnezzar I is that he had a little war with the Elamites that would be celebrated in literature for hundreds of years afterwards. But we're going to save that for last because it was probably in the second half of his reign. I say that like we know anything, but honestly, we can place almost nothing in his reign chronologically, and so we just make up an order that sounds compelling, using tiny bits of evidence to guide us. And so, we start again, in probably around 1121 BCE. Nebuchadnezzar was probably involved in killing his father, but aside from that, he takes over the throne with minimal issues that we know about. His early domestic priorities are not clear to us. Probably a fair bit went on as he tried to stabilize his new regime, but on the military front, it seems likely that he made his first moves quite soon, maybe within the first few years. Now, we talk about Babylon and Assyria like two modern-day states, areas with fixed and clear territory and a nice sharp border between the two. And for sure, the kings who wrote the histories like to talk in that manner as well, because it definitely favors an interpretation of their own power that is quite expansive. But in reality, and especially in the still chaotic times following the Bronze Age collapse, the border region is much more in flux than that. Authority was not wielded over tracts of land, but over individual cities and towns, and often those towns were aligned 
more like with one side over the other than actually subject to them in the sense of a modern nation. And it was these border areas that Nebuchadnezzar likely turned his attention to first of all. Now, some of these housed nomads who were harassing Babylonian farmers, and these needed to be discouraged with violence. Some Babylonian-line towns were wavering in their loyalty, either because of Nebuchadnezzar's father's death or because of matters in local politics that are just completely lost to history. And these needed probably just to have the troops marched through to remind everyone who was in charge. Now, some towns, especially on the eastern and western fringes of the border, likely thought that they were far enough away to just do their own thing, which was an error that needed correcting. And, of course, some towns were straight-up Assyria-aligned and needed to be poked with sharp sticks until that alignment was corrected. We don't know how many campaigns Nebuchadnezzar led in his lifetime, but there are reasons to think it may have been a large number. This is, in other ways, the peak of Babylonian military power for the next few centuries, which, spoilers for 3,000-year-old history here, is mostly going to be Assyria-dominated for quite a while. Since he likely felt that he could use his military might to plunder small towns and discourage others from plundering his own small towns, it stands to reason that he would use that power. Now this poking and prodding made Nebuchadnezzar bold. He'd not yet struck at Assyria itself, however, because there was a truce that had been established between his father and Asher Resh-Ishi, who's still king up in Asher. Now at some point in the early years, though, Nebuchadnezzar decided that truces are for people who can't win battles, and launched a campaign north against the towns of Zaku and Idu. Now, Zaku had been attacked by Nebuchadnezzar's father, but Idu was about 40 miles south of Arba'il, the high water mark of his father's campaign. Now, why these two targets were chosen is unclear. Historians also say it isn't clear why Nebuchadnezzar would attack, though I would think that the need to defeat a major enemy for political reasons, as well as the desire for plunder and conquest, would together be more than enough reason. Now, the only source for this war comes from the Assyrians, who claim that it was a complete victory for the north. Nebuchadnezzar laid a long siege to Ida, but ultimately Assyrian reinforcements were able to come in from somewhere else and force the Babylonians to not just abandon the siege, but also to move out so fast that they had to burn their siege rams to keep them out of enemy hands. Now, this detail is pretty significant. Siege rams were a massive expense in ancient Mesopotamia because large trees had to be imported from very far away, transported then with great difficulty to various battle sites, and even large empires likely only owned a small handful of them at this point in history. This is given as proof that the Assyrians won the war handily, and they aren't necessarily wrong about that. However, the fact that Nebuchadnezzar was able to push so far and lay siege north for an extended period of time, well, there are also indicators that the south was currently more able to project power than the north, more able to launch and supply armies far away from the homeland. 
Now, we need to understand both that the Assyrians ultimately won the war, while also recognizing that Babylon is still militarily quite strong in order to understand what happens next. Nebuchadnezzar and Asheresh Ishi conclude a treaty which will stand for the rest of Nebuchadnezzar's life, likely with a few small territorial concessions along the strategically crucial Diyala River coming off the Tigris, that is, concessions towards Babylon. More than mere plunder or conquest, a secure northern front and the Diyala River are what Nebuchadnezzar really wanted here. Now, before he could move on to the next phase in his grand plan, assuming there ever actually was a grand plan and he wasn't just improvising, he needed to secure the rest of his borders. We know basically nothing about this, but he claims to have slaughtered a bunch of Amorites and Lullabayan tribesmen. And this is actually increasingly unlikely, as both are fast becoming anachronistic terms. The so-called Amorites at this point are probably some early Aramaeans, um, about whom we'll be hearing much more in the future, and these Lilibaeans were likely just some random dudes out of the Zagros Mountains. The Lilibaeans probably haven't been relevant in centuries, but they keep calling everyone in the Zagros Mountains Lilibaeans, because why not? Still, these are functionally the same sort of barbarians as their ancestors the last few hundred years have been. They weren't actually defeated, just some particular groups were attacked to discourage raiding for a few years. On this front, though, that's all that Nebuchadnezzar really needs. Now, with the groundwork laid, Nebuchadnezzar is now ready to begin what later centuries would remember and celebrate as a holy crusade. Now, you'll meet some in life who are very convinced that only the Abrahamic religions are capable of things like jihad and crusade, and they typically treat this as a sign of some unique brutality or barbarism inherent in monotheistic or Abrahamic faiths. Now, many of you should recognize that this is nonsense, but for those of you who don't, the campaigns of Nebuchadnezzar into Elam are celebrated precisely because it put into Nebuchadnezzar's head by the god Marduk. Now, maybe it isn't strictly true, maybe no god spoke and Nebuchadnezzar was just using piety to justify an invasion, but for the rest of the Mesopotamian period, literature would be written about this campaign that expresses it specifically as a deed done in God's name just like the Crusades of the Middle Ages. Now, divinely inspired or not, the great adventure of Nebuchadnezzar's reign begins with an assault on the province of Neymar. Now, we talked a good bit about the Kassite dynasty who ruled Babylon in the late Bronze Age, but it was never the case that all of the Kassites were unified and ruling as one people. Rather, one particular group of Kassites held power in Babylon, and they dealt with many other Kassite tribes around Mesopotamia, either as clients and vassals, or friends, or allies, or enemies, or neutrals, or, you know, they're just people. And once the Kassite dynasty fell, all these other Kassite groups just kept on going, some fully integrated into the Babylonian government, and some more or less independently. One of these Kassite groups, a tribe called Bithaban, 
was the dominant force over much of the Diyala River province of Neymar and showed themselves to be insufficiently deferential to the Babylonians at some point in history. But like we said, there are a ton of Kassite groups, and marching right alongside the Babylonian army as they went to the Diyala River was a fellow named Shidi Marduk, a Kassite and the head of the Bit-Karziabku tribe. Now, Shidi Marduk, which the name definitely doesn't mean what it means in English, is significant because it is from his own war memorial that he would establish later in life that we get probably the most compelling ancient war narrative since the Battle of Kadesh. He doesn't actually mention much about the Diyala River campaign, except that Nebuchadnezzar was victorious and conquered the region from the Kassites of the Bithaban tribe. Though Bithaban was kept in power, they were put under various penalties, like having some city walls torn down and having some punitive levies applied to them. But Bithaban was not really the enemy. They were just between Babylon and the enemy, sitting on a province with a particularly good mountain pass for entering into Elamite territory. But why did Nebuchadnezzar want to enter into Elamite territory in the first place? Well, it was either before or after this campaign against the Kassites that two priests, Shamua and his father Shamuya, arrived in Nebuchadnezzar's court. Now, these were priests of the god Emia, and the Elamites had attacked their temple, stolen their god, and generally made a mess of things. And these two priests, possibly being the only ones who escaped, or at least the only two important ones, maybe some servants made it, but history doesn't care about those people. This was all the cause for war that Nebuchadnezzar really needed. The Elamites had attacked a temple. But everyone in Babylon knew that there was another problem. Now, back a generation ago, when the Kassite dynasty had been ended by the Elamites, the Elamites had sacked Babylon. Now, this alone was bad and, you know, deserved a bit of retribution, but far more importantly, during the occupation, the Elamites had stolen the cult image of the god Marduk. Now, remember that in ancient Mesopotamia, these images were believed to literally house the spirit of the god. And if the statue of Marduk had been stolen, then so too had Marduk himself. The knowledge that the Elamites had literally stolen away the god of the city of Babylon had hung like a cloud over the city for some 30 years. Now, later writers will plaster over this by saying that Marduk had simply you know, chosen for inscrutable and unknowable reasons to take a walk over to Elam and is now calling Nebuchadnezzar to pick him up like a kid calling his parents after partying at a friend's house or a drunk who needs a taxi ride home from the bar. But at the time, they surely knew the full shame of what had happened. And so Nebuchadnezzar assembled an army of Babylon and marched up the newly conquered Diyala River and into the land of the Elamites, which is modern-day Iran. Now, this would have been tough, 
As far as we can tell, the Elamites were at this point fairly unified under a strong king, and this, plus the fact that the Zagros Mountains are rough terrain, would have made this a challenging march. Keeping the army supplied would have been difficult, and keeping those supply lines safe from raiders likely bled him of troops. Shortly after entering the mountains, though, it wasn't these mere mortal concerns that would beset the Babylonians, but a plague sent from the gods. The army would slow to a halt, and eventually be forced to return in the face of disease and divine displeasure. But it wasn't just divine displeasure that had fallen on them. The Elamites knew they were coming, had prepared an army, and had harassed them all the way back to the eastern Tigris region, then pushed the Babylonian army even out of there, fleeing back to Babylon as fast as their plague-ravaged bodies could take them. For a period after that, the Elamites raided the eastern Tigris area with impunity, as Nebuchadnezzar considered what he had done wrong. It turns out that he had messed up by failing to get the permission of the gods correctly. Perhaps he had merely assumed that going to the aid of the, of the distressed priests was sufficient divine sanction, or perhaps the priests had performed the rites improperly. Whatever the case, the Babylonian government now spent quite a lot of time and effort performing the oracles correctly to figure out how to get the gods to bless a renewed attack on Elam. It turns out, what the gods wanted from their champion was an ordeal. And so, Nebuchadnezzar gathered his men and chariots from all around Babylonia and waited for the time set out by the gods the middle of high Mesopotamian summer. The account of Shidi Marduk reads, From Dur, the temple city of the god An, he conducted a raid across thirty leagues. In the month of Dumazid, he launched the campaign. The entire time the air was scorching, as if it were fire, and the winding way was burning like a flame. There was no water in the meadows, and the watering places were cut off. The finest of the great horses halted, and the legs of the valiant warrior buckled. The king, the preeminent one, carries on, the gods supporting him. Nebuchadnezzar advances, having no equal. He is not awed by the difficult terrain, but increases the daily march. Now attacking at the height of summer, was not the typical campaign season in Mesopotamia. It's hot. You can ask anyone who spent time in the Middle East, that whole region gets hot. And those particular areas in the height of summer can easily get up to 110, 120 degrees Fahrenheit. That's the upper 40s to about 50 degrees Celsius. This would have been a surprise attack to the Elamites, and probably would have been a bit of a surprise for Nebuchadnezzar's troops as well, and not a welcome one. Shidi Marduk's descriptions, while a bit poetic, are also quite accurate to how it feels over there. 
Quite possibly, these heat-related images are included to remind the reader that the sun god Shamash was directly involved in supporting Nebuchadnezzar in this holy crusade, even if maybe he was a bit over-enthusiastic with the temperatures. Anyway, the march reaches its climax, and our source says, Shidi Marduk, chief of Bitkarziabku, whose chariot was on the right flank of the king his lord, did not fall behind, but drove his chariot onward. The mighty king hastened and reached the bank of the Ulaya River, which is deep in Elamite territory, close to Susa. Both kings met, and they did battle. Fire blazed in their midst. The face of the sun was covered by their dust clouds. Dust storms were whirling about, the storms circling. In the storm of their battle, the warrior in the chariot could not see the man who was with him in the chariot. Now, we could read this as poetry, just indicating that the battle was intense, but indeed, at the height of summer, a battle between a few thousand men could well kick up enough dust to make a huge dust storm, and the fire in their midst could well have been a metaphorical blaze of action and passion, or it could just have been actual heat. Some translators read these passages as saying, that the bronze axes in the soldiers' hands were so hot that they were hard to keep hold of. Mostly, we hear wars from the perspective of kings, priests, and scribes, and while Shidi Marduk was not quite the common man, being the leader of a tribe, he seems to be much more focused on the realities on the ground than most ancient battle accounts. Now, he concludes with a big finish, naturally glorifying himself, by saying, Shidi Marduk, chief of Bitkarziabku, whose chariot was on the right, king, right flank of, his, of the king his lord, did not fall behind, but drove his chariot onward. He did not fear the battle, but went down against the enemy. What's more, he penetrated into the ranks of the enemy of his lord, at the command of Ishtar and Adad, the lords of battle, he turned back Hultedish in Shushanak, the king of Elam, and that king disappeared forever. Thus, King Nebuchadnezzar stood in victory. He seized the land of Elam. He carried off its property. Now, it's a stirring account, and there's good reason to think that it's broadly true. Sure, we may be skeptical of Shidi Marduk singing his own praises here a bit, but the stella where this story is inscribed is not actually a war monument. The bits that I've just read you are the prologue of a legal document in which Shidi Marduk is confirmed as leader over Bit Karziapku, and his tribe is given special privileges in that Kassite province of Namer on the, Di on the Diala River. It's these heroics in battle which are used to justify the special tax advantages that Shidi Marduk's tribe receives later in the text, which suggests that his personal heroism, or perhaps the heroism of the Bitkarziabku detachment more generally, was in fact exceptional. Now, there's no doubt that Nebuchadnezzar won a solid, open-field battle here on the Ulaya River, but as for the claims of a sweeping victory over the Elamites more generally, there's reason to be skeptical. 
the named king appears in Elamite sources to have survived the battle, even if the Babylonians thought he disappeared forever. And the Elamite monarchy would continue for a while longer, though it is in a long-term kind of decline at this point. It is possible that Nebuchadnezzar used the opening from this battle to very quickly sack the city of Susa, though for some reason he was restrained in what he was able to take back. An alternate interpretation is that following the battle, he entered into a negotiation with the Elamite king in which he demanded the return specifically of certain cult items and did not receive a whole bunch of wealth more broadly. Frankly, it's likely that everyone knew that despite this big win, Babylon lacked the logistical capacity to carry out war any further, and was likely stretched pretty thin as it was. Whether by negotiation or by sack, Elam actually turned over relatively little, which we know because there are still artifacts which had been stolen in earlier sacks of Babylon, which any invading army really would have wanted to recover and take back to Babylon, but which were left in Susa for later generations. Now, he may or may not have sent a triumphal letter back to Babylon, but whatever the case everyone soon found out about the great victory as Nebuchadnezzar's army marched into the city to what was surely much fanfare. We assume, though, we have no contemporary documents proving that he then installed the Marduk statue into the Esagula temple and probably did some improvements to that temple. What we do know from the few documents which survive is that things after this were pretty quiet. Nebuchadnezzar is mostly concerned about letting everyone know that he spent a great deal of time and effort attending to various pieties, improving various temples around Babylonia. Additionally, he would become a major patron of the literary arts, and the impact of both his religious attention and his literary patronage is what we're going to be looking at over the next two episodes. You see, what we've looked at going over his biography is frankly, no better than merely decent. And yet he would be elevated, as I've said multiple times in history, to a heroic status. So join us next time as we look at what attaining heroic status looked like as we skip ahead and look at the writings of Nebuchadnezzar's distant descendants about this time period. Thank you for listening.